0: Holy God, by your grace and your power, we pray that you would bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word. That we would hear and understand what you have to say to us today. And that your word would be implanted in us and would grow and produce fruit in our lives That we would be edified and sanctified. That your church would be built up. And that you would receive all the glory. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. We began a sermon series last week on Genesis 1 through 3. And we're continuing that sermon series this morning. The bulletin says we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31. I'm going to back up just a little bit and start at verse 24 so we can get the full six day of creation. This is the word of the Lord. It is written. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? This is such a simple question and yet it is extraordinarily complex. Ask three different people this question and you are almost guaranteed to get three completely different answers. I discovered this past week that the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History has a message board on its website as part of the Human Origins Initiative. And this message board serves as a venue for people around the world to post what they think it means to be human. Here are a few responses. Andy from South Africa said, Walking upright, making and using tools, the use of fire, language, symbolic thinking, art, and the use of jewelry, barter, and trade. Jack from New Jersey said, The privilege of consciousness at the cost of having a conscience. Betts from South Carolina said, having a soul. Derek from Arizona said, humans are primates, a continually evolving animal whose spiritual and intellectual development has made him the most vicious animal of all. And Martin from the UK, who notes that he is about to start a PhD on this very subject, said, exhibiting an emergent behavior that we would recognize as being human. And then he added, this is a really hard question. (laughs) Indeed, Martin, it is a really hard question. But at the same time, our answer to this really hard question is foundational in shaping how we live our lives. Unfortunately, it seems to me that there is more confusion than ever about this question. This confusion is caused by our exposure to what seems to be countless philosophies about what it means to be human, and this is coupled with the advancement of technology that is increasingly making it possible to move beyond our mental and physical limitations. If you pay any attention, you will find movies and television shows exploring this new field called transhumanism, although you will probably never hear that term used. It is at the same time fascinating and disturbing, and it does have moral implications. It might just be me, but it seems as though many have answered this question about the nature of being human in the extreme. So on the one hand, it seems like there are a large number of people who understand humans to be gods. A few weeks ago, I happened to end up in a hotel elevator with Morgan Freeman, the actor. And now, here I am, staying in a hotel with a man who has literally played God in a movie and has done a docu-series recently, still going, called The Story of God, So I did what any preacher would do. I went to my room and I Googled him to see if I could figure out what he believed just in case I ran into him again. Because even famous people who don't know Jesus need someone to share the gospel. What I found saddened my heart. He was asked in an interview not too long ago if he believed in God, and he responded by saying that he did believe in God because he was God. He added that what he believed, that we have created God in our own image, and therefore his conclusion was that he himself was God. Unfortunately, I did not run into him again to ask him about his beliefs. And I wish that what he believed was uncommon, but I think that there are vast numbers of people who would agree with him. In a world where... There is no God. We are our own gods. We are the captains of our own destiny. We determine our own meaning and purpose. And as Pastor John alluded to this past week, there also seems to be growing interest in and influence from Eastern religions and New Age beliefs, which hold that the divine is in all things, meaning that the human is divine. The other side of this coin, this extreme that humans are God, are the vast numbers of people who believe that we are here by accident. We have simply evolved from a primordial suit, from a random series of chemical and physical reactions that have led to the formation of organic compounds that have combined together to produce more complex compounds that somehow mysteriously led to the development of organisms and not only organisms, but very complex organisms like humans. And therefore, we are, with a few apparently not so noteworthy exceptions, no different than animals. We just happen to be in luck that our brains evolved in a way that has placed us at the top of the food chain. Speaking of the food chain, some of you may have seen this past week that there was a news story on a billboard that was put up by PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. The billboard, which has been put up, I think, in Maryland, had a picture of a crab on it with the tagline, I'm me, not meat. See the individual, go vegan. Now, there might be reasons, legitimate reasons to become a vegan, but equating an animal to a human being, even to the point of comparing eating a crab to cannibalism, which is what is happening here, is definitely the other extreme of believing you are a god. So this is our context. These are the two extremes we so often find ourselves between between trying to understand the nature of our humanness and navigate life rightly. Either you are a god or you are a meaningless accident no different than any other animal. A Psychology Today article I read recently went through the multiple possibilities for what it means to be a human and towards the end of the article it said this, and I quote, at this point it looks like the concept of the human is hopelessly confused. The article goes on to try to solve the the problem of this confusion by using really convoluted psychological and philosophical mumbo-jumbo to essentially say that describing a person to be human simply means that you are describing the person to be like you. But what if you are confused about what you are? Into this confusion, Genesis 1 speaks. It tells us a different story about what it means to be human. It is a story that we desperately need to hear and understand because it is told by our creator, the one who shaped and formed us, really the only one who can tell us who we are and why we are here. And this is so important, so foundational to our Christian worldview that I want us to spend this Sunday and next seeking to understand what Scripture says on this point. So today we're focusing on what this text means for who we are as those created in God's image, after his likeness, as this passage says. Or what is the nature of the image of God in humankind? We will also be examining the implications of this nature. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be thinking about what it means for what we do. What is our function or purpose in God's creation? So as we begin looking at this sixth day of creation, we notice that there's been a shift here. As there was with the third day, there are two creative acts that occur on this sixth day, the creation of animals who inhabit the fertile earth that's been created on the third day, and human beings. And at this point in which human beings are created, there is a change in the rhythm that we have found in the first five days. We find that the transcendent, all-powerful creator God no longer simply is speaking things into existence, but rather, as Old Testament scholar Gerard von Rad states, God participates more intimately and intentionally in this than in earlier works of creation. As Von Rad points out, we find the Hebrew verb for to create or make three times in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Nowhere else in the first six days do we see this revealing, as Von Rad says, that the use of this verb receives its fullest significance for that divine creativity, which is absolutely without analogy. What we are seeing here is God's creative work come to its high point, its apex, its goal with the creation of humankind. This is the last and also the greatest of God's creation. The creation of human beings is the pinnacle of God's creation. And God is not simply creating here. He is creating in his image. This should get our attention. I want to come back in just a moment to this idea that humankind is the apex of creation. But for now, I want us to start by asking what may seem to be another very simple question. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, what does Scripture say here in Genesis 1? And the answer is, unfortunately, not much. At least not anything explicit. It tells us that humankind has been created in God's image and after his likeness, but it provides no comment, content to fill out what that means. Genesis 1 seems far more interested in the consequences of humankind being created in God's image than in the nature of humankind at this point. We see in verse 26 that the text, without stopping to explain, moves from telling us that humankind is created in God's image to saying that we that humans are to have dominion over all creatures. And this happens again in verse 27. I think, however, as many theologians and biblical scholars affirm, the function or task of having dominion is not the content of what is being meant by being created in the image of God. In other words, our human nature is not defined by what we do. Rather, what we do is created defined by our human nature. And so this lack of content is perhaps why many Christians, if asked what it means to be created in God's image, would answer the question in so many different ways, or not really know what to say at all. But despite the seeming lack of content in Genesis 1, Scripture does have things to say about how to interpret the meaning of this truth. So to fill this out a little, we need to look at the context of this passage and to a few other places in the scriptures where the same language is used. So first, in the context of this passage, we know that humans are created uniquely. No other creature of God is said to be made in his image. Humans, therefore, are set apart from the rest of God's creatures. While scripture affirms in places like Psalm 19 and Romans 1 that all creation paint for us a picture of God's character and attributes, human beings are created in a way that God's image can be seen in them unlike anything else in all of the rest of creation. This truth is then amplified by the fact that human beings have been commanded to have dominion over all the animals. And we'll get into what this means next week, but for now we can see from the text that humans are not on the same level, not even in the same category as the rest of the creatures that God has created. Humans are created special and therefore serve a special place in God's creation. Second, we see for the first and only time in the creation narrative, God's self-deliberation. It says in verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We're given a glimpse here of the persons of the Godhead speaking to each other. Now, I want to acknowledge here that there are some who insist that the use of this plural, these plural pronouns is something other than self-deliberation within the plurality of the Godhead, arguing that a triune God would have made no sense to the original author or audience of this text. They have no concept at all of a triune God at this point. However, We have already had the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters in verse 2 of this chapter. So a plurality within the Godhead seems to already be there. Not only this, I don't think we should be saying that just because the original author or audience can't see a fuller sense of what a text is pointing to, meaning God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then it mustn't be interpreted in this way. There are plenty of references and... prophecies to Christ in the Old Testament that the original author or audience would have never been able to understand nor fathom. This doesn't make them any less about Jesus. Therefore, because this text allows for this interpretation, and the fuller sense of Scripture leads us to know that there is a plurality within the one true Creator God, and that all the persons of the Trinity are involved in creation, then I believe we can come to this interpretation without difficulty. But what is the implication of this interpretation for being created in the image of God? It means this. If we are created in the image of a God who exists eternally in community and relationship within his very being, then it will likely mean that being in his image will have something to do with relationship. And I think that this gets affirmed as we move through the text. It gets affirmed in that humans are created male and female. There isn't one human created, there are two. Right off the bat, humans are created in community. And they will both be necessary in carrying out the mandate to be fruitful and fill the earth. Now, I don't want to say too much more on this point right now because we're going to come back to this in Genesis 2, but we certainly note that no other creature in this narrative is identified as having sexual distinction, which isn't to say that it wasn't there, but it is to emphasize the sexual distinction within humanity. There is both equality here, meaning both male and female individually are created in the image of God, and there is also the notion that male and female are created to complement one another. So humans are created in community with one another, but they are also created in community with God. Human beings are not only blessed by God here, but are also given responsibility, a special assignment, if you will. They are to exercise dominion. What this implies is, is that humans can hear God's word and respond to it, which means that human beings are accountable to God in a way that the rest of creation isn't. Therefore, being created in God's image means that humans are created to be relational, not just with one another, but, with, but also with God himself. So from the context, we learn that being created in God's image implies that humans are uniquely created, set apart from the rest of creation, that humans are relationally created for one another and for God. But we can also come to understand the content of who we have been created to be by understanding the meaning of the words image and likeness as they are used in the rest of Scripture as well as from the cultural context during the time Genesis 1 was written. So the word image is actually not a commonly used word in the Old Testament. It's only used 17 times. Five of those come from Genesis. So it's somewhat difficult to translate, but most of the time when it's used, it refers to various types of physical images or solid representation of something. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 16, 17, where it refers to pictures of men, or in Numbers thirty three fifty two, where it refers to idols. Likeness is a little easier word to translate, being a, just a more general term for resemblance. Most of its occurrences are found in Ezekiel's visions, like in 1, 5, where it's translated the likeness of. So, while these two terms carry somewhat different meanings... Genesis 5 reveals that these two words are being used interchangeably since it points back to these verses in Genesis 1, but it reads, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. See what's happened here? He's exchanged in the image for in the likeness. Genesis 5 is also helpful in correctly discerning how to interpret the meaning of these verses in Genesis 1 because it not only echoes the language of Genesis 1, it also creates a connection for us between image and sonship. Verse 3 says of chapter 5, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, this is Seth, in his own likeness after his image. The language of sons being in the image of their fathers was not uncommon in the surrounding culture, nor is it uncommon today. All the time, we look at babies and say he looks just like his father. And what do we mean by this? There might be some physical resemblance, but typically a little baby doesn't really look anything like his father. What we're noticing is disposition and expressions and character traits. And as a child grows and matures, the image of the father becomes more recognizable as the child child begins to mirror more and more the attitudes and character traits of his father. There are two other ways that image was used by the surrounding culture that are significant for our understanding of the meaning of this word here in Genesis 1. First is how it's used in relation to idols, which seems sort of odd. Idols were images of deities thought to carry the essence of what it represented. It wasn't that the idol itself looked exactly like the deity or could do exactly what the deity could do, but the deity's work was accomplished through the idol. This was the thought. So the word for image meant a representation in physical form, not necessarily a representation of physical appearance. Are you following me? See where I'm going? Likewise, kings in that cultural context were sometimes described as the image of God. Again, it wasn't that they looked like God. Rather, it was thought that they were adopted by God as sons to function as representatives, as vice regents for whatever the patron deity was for the region that they had rule over. So from all of this, we come to a better understanding of what it means to be created in God's image. And here is where the rubber hits the road. It means that humans are created as concrete resemblances of God, This is not to say that we necessarily look like God physically. Remember that God does not have a spirit, that God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Although the ways in which we may mirror God's character are expressed in and through our bodily existence. Since we cannot separate our spiritual and our physical selves, we are whole persons And the meaning of being created in the image of God applies to us as whole persons. It's not merely spiritual. But the bigger picture of this is that the image of God, is that the image of God, what it means to be created in the image of God, is that we share characteristics of God, which are seen here in Genesis 1 and throughout the whole of Scripture. As John Collins states, God displays features of his character. He shows intelligence in designing the world as a place for man to live. He uses language when he says things. He appreciates what is good morally and ascetically. He works and rests. He is also relation. in the way he establishes a connection with man that is governed by love and commitment, as we see in Genesis 2. And all of this, God is a pattern for man. This means that humankind is created with reason and conscience and self-awareness, some level of free will, the ability to communicate and be in relationship with others and with God and to have spiritual discernment. And we could probably think of other characteristics. But in all of these ways and more, it means that to be human is to be created in God's image, to have the potential to be like God and to reflect God and to have the potential to be in relationship with God. And as we'll see next week, because we have been created in God's image, as those who have the ability to mirror God to the creation around us, we are called to serve as royal representatives over God's good creation. But we are also fallen creatures. As we will be discussing in weeks to come, the New Testament, and as the New Testament indicates the language it uses about the image of God, while it's still present it has been damaged in us it needs to be restored in ways that which makes us most human our ability to image god has been severely devastated and distorted but there's good news for us god has not abandoned us but has condescended to our level in Jesus Christ, the one in whom and for whom all things were made, has taken on human flesh, even as he's come as, as it says in Colossians 1, as the image of the invisible God. And thanks be to God by his grace, he has come not only to forgive our sin and restore us to relationship with God, but he has come to restore the image of God in us by His Holy Spirit, those who are claimed by Christ are being transformed into the image of God. They are called and enabled to put on the new self which has been created after the likeness of God. As John Collins states, the image of God is the norm and goal into which the Christian believer is being molded. We once again have the potential to grow in the likeness of God in Christ in the same way a son Grows in the likeness of His Father. And yet, all people, all people have been created in God's image, regardless of whether they are being conformed to the image of Christ or not, and this has big implications for us. I want to mention two very briefly this morning. First, I think we should consider for a moment the wonder of this truth. Kent Hughes challenges us in this manner, so consider this, so consider this, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust though you could observe close up the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God, the imagio Dei. This, beloved, is a breathtaking thought. And with this in mind, the second implication is this. The scriptures are clear that how we treat other people matters. Why? Because we approach one another as bearers of God's image, and we should treat others with the dignity that that image affords. Why shouldn't you murder according to Genesis 9? Because you would be killing an image bearer of God. There is sanctity in human life. Why should we exercise restraint over how we use our tongues according to James? because we shouldn't be cursing anyone who bears a likeness to God. And this applies to everyone, regardless of race, regardless of sex, male or female, regardless of physical or mental ability, regardless of age, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone is made in God's image and therefore should be treated with dignity as an image-bearer of God. And I think at this point, we have something to celebrate regardless of how confused people are about what it means to be human, which has resulted in all means of wrong-headed living, our culture has, or at least seems to have, a very deep sense that people have an inherent worth and value. People are concerned about how others are being treated. They're concerned about issues like racism. They're concerned about how others are making a living wage. They're concerned about the weakest in society having a voice and being heard. concerned about others being marginalized and dismissed. They're concerned about equality. They're concerned about people having access to affordable health care. They're concerned about people being brutalized. If we can look past the politics of these things, we as Christians should acknowledge and give thanks that this general recognition of the innate value of human life is evidence of God's common grace for all at work in the world for the ordering and upholding of society. As Kent Hughes states, the image of God still persists in sinful men and women, though marred and sometimes even a caricature and a witness against itself. And as Christians, we should be striving to outdo, we should be striving to outdo our unbelieving fellow citizens in these concerns and actions to identify and address areas in which people are being denied basic human needs because we of all people know and believe in the value of human life. So in closing, let us affirm what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God. Let us strive to put on the new self which is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let us seek to approach others as those who bear the image of the one true living God and let us give them In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have, in your grace and in your goodness and in your love, that you have created all things. And you have created us in your image and placed us as a crown of your grace. Help us. Help us to seek to grow into that image. Help us to represent that image to all the world. They might turn to you, our Heavenly Father, and give you all thanks and praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.